Back to a Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. I have invited to be our guest for the entire time, Dr. Fritoff Kapra. Fritoff Kapra has been a, uh, a great teacher for me over the course of decades, actually, with what was his first big book, The Tao of Physics. We'll get into that in just a moment. But first, just to say, those of you who listen with any regularity know that we focus on this show on creating a holistic perspective, worldview, a view that is much larger, more synthetic, if you will, more like a a sense of gestalt, an ongoing, non-sequential necessarily, non-linear perspective that allows us to, if you will, to use the great word from television, grok, an entire picture of reality in one moment of understanding the interstitial relationships between all things, recognizing that nature is basically a series of independent, I'm sorry, interdependent phenomena, essentially energy, essentially one big verb that we're always involved in process. Well, one of the true leaders in this space of understanding exactly those ideas and beyond is Fritoff Kapra, today's guest. Fritoff has been involved in uh, teaching, educating people around the world, actually even writing a screenplay uh, of films uh, that talks about this, Mind Walk, and it's a, a dramatic expression of these kinds of ideas that have actually been with us for the better part of a century, but have not been really articulated and integrated into our worldview commonly and into even the fabric of society, as in to our economics, our building of institutions and systems, uh, our understanding of it relative to biology and the body. So that's where Dr. Capra has come in very strongly and is playing a significant role in bringing this forward. A couple of words of introduction. Uh, Dr. Capra was born in Vienna. He's a physicist and systems theorist. He first became popularly known for the book I referenced earlier, The Tao of Physics, which explored the ways in which modern physics was changing our worldview from a mechanistic Newtonian one to a holistic and ecological one. Published in 1975, it is still in print in more than 40 editions worldwide and is referenced with a statue of Shiva in the courtyard of one of the world's largest, most respected centers for scientific research, CERN, the Center for Research in Particle Physics in Geneva, Switzerland. Over the past 30 years since the writing of that book, uh, Dr. Capra has been engaged in a systematic exploration of how other sciences and society are ushering in a similar worldview or a new paradigm leading to a new vision of systems and our understanding of the social implications of this cultural transformation. So we'll comb over a little bit of 
the history with Fritoff, as well as take a look at his most recent work, The Systems View of Life, on which subject he is going to be teaching a class that I am very happily uh, enrolled in this coming fall. So, Fritoff, welcome to A Better World. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, hello, Mitchell. It's uh, my great pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. You know, I, I, it's so much fun for me because I've uh, been referencing your book for so many years now, the original Tao of Physics, because right. you so beautifully articulated that intimate relationship between our intuitive, instinctive sense of what's true, a lot of which has been uh, described and articulated in different wisdom traditions around the world, but especially right. uh, the Taoist and Buddhist and uh, Eastern traditions, Vedic, and the magnificence also of Western science and the Western mindset. So thank you, Dankeschön. I really appreciate <laughs> pita, pita. what you have brought forward to the world. I think it's, it's actually been pivotal, and the kind of receptivity you have gotten from it and since I think yes. is testament to how which has really shaped my work and my life. You know, tell me, please tell our audience about that. Give us a little well, insight into that. Well, when when I wrote the Tao of Physics, I lived in London in the early seventies, and uh, I had intuited that uh, similarity between the concepts of modern physics and uh, the basic concepts of Eastern mystical traditions. And I felt very strongly that this would be common knowledge one day and, and that I was just in the right place at the right time with you know, the right uh, qualifications to write that book. And so I did. And I asked friends of mine in London who, who were writers, uh, what's a bestseller? because I wanted to write a bestseller. And they said, well, if you sell 10,000 copies, you can call it a bestseller. Well, the Tao of Physics, as you know, has sold well over a million copies now. And so this success was just way beyond anything I dreamed of. And as a consequence, I got in touch with people from all walks of life, from all professions, institutions of, from many fields invited me to lecture. And uh, what people told me there was that uh, I had expressed something that they had felt for a long time. This shift that you described, Mitchell, from the mechanistic worldview to a holistic and ecological view, that was happening all over the place in other sciences and in society at large. And so because of that, I then became interested in other fields, in biology, in economics, in medicine, in, in ecology, in psychology, and so on. And so I explored the paradigm shift in these other fields. And, and that was, you know, the last 30 years of my life. And it all began with the big success of the Tao of Physics. That is wonderful. It's such a good story. And you made reference, Vitoff, to your qualifications. And we both know that on one hand, you could say your analytical skills from the University of Vienna, having been right. a theoretical physicist, 
but that was, you could say, only half the story, half the brain. And uh, the other was that you actually were practicing Taiji Chuan. You were right. yourself studying the work of Lao Tzu and the Tao, and you had yourself a personal experience of right. and, reality. And you know, I, I would go even further back, Mitchell, that that uh, you know, to my childhood, because I grew up mm-hmm. in a family with a mother who was a poet. And uh, my father was a lawyer, but he was very interested in philosophy. He was sort of an amateur philosopher and had a fairly large mm-hmm. library of philosophical books. So in, yes. at the dinner table in our family with my brother and me and our parents, uh, we always spoke about art, about poetry, about philosophy, about religion, spirituality, and, and that's how I grew up. Uh, my parents were not scientists, and uh, so I, I inherited that, that interest. And then when I was a young physics student, I came across a book, which is now a classic by Werner Heisenberg, one of the founders of quantum theory. And the book is sure. called Physics and Philosophy. And there I saw both sides uh, of my of my uh, childhood, uh, childhood, and and, and yeah. you know inheritance in in this title, yeah. and naturally I was very interested. And in this book, Heisenberg describes very vividly how a handful of physicists faced a very unexpected and and uh, mysterious reality, the reality of atomic and subatomic physics, and how it forced them to think in an entirely new way, to create a new language, new concepts, new ideas. And uh, that fascinated me from my days in Vienna as a physics student. And then later on, 10 years later, I realized that this new reality was actually very similar to the reality described in mystical traditions. And that's how I came to write the book. That is so interesting. You know, you and I, who met through a dear friend and colleague of both of ours, the wonderful futurist and holistic economist, Hazel Henderson, uh, you and I had an initial intuition of how similar our own uh, backgrounds and interests are. And everything you just said almost reminded me it wasn't in Vienna, it was in New York and Connecticut, but many, many uh, parallels in your childhood dinner table and my mm-hmm. own. It was I more see. my mother also, who was an artist in so many ways, yeah. uh, who had an interest in such subjects. And uh, we were born Jewish, but not at all practicing. It was more of a mm-hmm. cultural thing. So interestingly, Fritoff, it kept open the entire canvas of possibility. I was not railroaded into any one kind of a picture or yeah. rabbit hole yeah. of what reality was. Yeah. And I just looked at the books on her bookshelf, and I yeah. found myself gravitating toward the Hindu, Taoist, and Buddhist as a, at a very early age. Yeah, interesting. So I'm but just let amused. Me, let me say a I'm few amused. words about our friend Hazel Henderson and, and tell you Please. how I met her. Um, 
when the Tao of Physics was so successful and I uh, wanted to explore other fields in which this paradigm shift also happened, I faced a big problem. Uh, how could I write about uh, psychology or how could I write about economics or ecology? These are fields in which I had no training. I was a physicist. And so I yeah. realized from the beginning of this exploration that I had to collaborate with other people. And so I looked for a group of advisors who could help me explore those other fields. And in the field of economics, I found Hazel Henderson, who was a radical economist or anti-economist, as she was sometimes yeah. called, and, and really uh, portrayed a new kind of economics, an ecological kind of economics. And she... Hazel uh, was one of the early systems thinkers in, in the social field, in the social realm, social and economic field. And so uh, when, when I met her, uh, we, we really sort of gravitated toward each other immediately. We had an immediate rapport and, and have been friends and colleagues ever since. That is a fantastic story, and it makes perfect sense. And... I know she, I don't know if she ever studied systems theory. She intrinsically understands the organic relationship between economics and ecology, which is yes. why her emphasis is so much on photons and a photonically based economy, you know, which is a right. beautiful well, marriage. You know, Hazel, right? Hazel didn't. As far as I know, she didn't formally study systems theory, but she met many scientists who who were and are uh, systems thinkers, like yes. like the economist Herman Daly, for instance, or Umberto mm -hmm. Maturana, Francisco Varela. Actually, you know, it was Hazel who introduced me to Francisco Varela, who influenced my work very much, and and so she knew all these people. And, uh, you know, she picked up, uh, she's a very quick learner, and she picked up yeah. systems thinking from these key sources. That is so interesting. And now we're going to have to um, smirk again because I interviewed Francisco uh, Varela back in the mid-1990s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at a uh, conference I was part of in New York City. Uh, and, you know, overall, not that many people actually even know of his work. But as you know, it was involving, he had Buddhist perspectives That's intrinsic right. to his yes. work. You know? uh, Francisco so. was a uh, neuroscientist, uh, a biologist, uh, Chilean from Santiago, he was a student of Umberto Maturana and then became his colleague, and they together uh, developed a radically new uh, theory of mind and consciousness, which I hope we're going to get to talk about a little bit. Yes, we will. And in fact, Absolutely. it was Francisco who introduced me to uh, my friend uh, Pierluigi Luisi, who is the co-author of uh, my, one of my latest books, The Systems View of Life. It was yes. through Francisco Varela that we met, and we actually dedicate the book to him and his memory. That's great. 
In fact, I would love to launch into that, but I would like, if it's okay with you, Fritoff, to to move through first the web sure. of life, your prior yeah. book, because that Absolutely. was antecedent to the more comprehensive yes. uh, work of the systems view of life. Right. So right. would you step us through that, that yeah. maturation so, so and let's, let's evolution, I should say? Okay, let's yeah. go back to uh, The Turning Point, which was my first book yeah. after the Tao of Physics, published in 1982. And as I said, there I branched out into various other fields, biology, psychology, medicine, economics, yeah. and so on. And uh, while I was writing the book, uh, I realized that uh, the quantum physics, the worldview of quantum physics that I had described in the Tao of Physics could not be extended to these other fields in a straightforward way because the issues I now became interested in, issues like health or management or economics or the protection of the environment uh, or social justice, all these issues have to do with life in one form or another, with either individual living organisms or social systems or ecosystems, all of which are living systems. And physics has nothing to say about life. Physics is the science of non-living matter. And so I was looking for a framework, for a conceptual framework that would allow me to talk about life in its various manifestations, in its biological dimension, its cognitive dimension, its social dimension, its ecological dimension, and so on. And so I began to put together a conceptual framework that integrated those dimensions. And I published two books about this framework as it evolved in my mind. The first one was The Web of Life, published in 1996. And it's a first synthesis of uh, the biological and the cognitive aspect of aspects of life. It doesn't have the social aspects yet. That came in a subsequent book called The Hidden Connections, published in 2002. But both books essentially are based on networks, the concept and phenomenon of networks. That's really the, the integrating concept. So this change of paradigms that we are talking about at the deepest level can be understood as a very profound change of metaphors from seeing the world mm -hmm. as a machine to understanding it as a network. We know today yes. that the network is the basic pattern of organization of all living systems. And, and that's my integrating concept. And this is why the book uh, is called The Web of Life. Yes. Yes, that's beautiful. It shows a definite maturation of thinking and also the obstacles of beginning to apply quantum theory into other disciplines altogether. It's not, and I guess it shouldn't surprise us, it's not a straight line. If anything, it's yes. something more yes. spirally in nature. Um, however, you have connected the dots, and you've connected the dots most thoroughly in your last work, your latest work, I should say. And yes, this is, uh, this is really I would love if you would uh, lay that out 
for yeah. us. There this are is, uh, four basic really, tenets. Please. Yeah, this is the culmination of my synthesis. So, so uh, over the last 30 years, I developed a synthesis of a new understanding of life that is now emerging in science, a synthesis, as I said, that integrates the biological, the cognitive, the social, and the ecological dimensions of life. And just to uh, you know, summarize it in, in a nutshell, um, at the forefront of contemporary science, the universe is no longer seen as a machine composed of some elementary building blocks, we have discovered that the material world ultimately is a network of inseparable patterns of relationships. We have also discovered that the planet as a whole is a living, self-regulating system. That's the famous Gaia theory. Correspondingly, mm -hmm. the view of the human body as a machine and of the mind as a separate entity are being replaced by one that sees not only the brain, and the nervous system, but also the immune system, the bodily tissues, and even each single cell as a living cognitive system. So a tremendous change. Then we can go yes. on to evolution. And in the book, we have three chapters on the system's view of evolution. Evolution is no longer seen as a competitive struggle for existence, but rather as some kind of cooperative dance in which creativity and the constant emergence of novelty are the driving forces. And with the new emphasis on complexity, on networks, on patterns of organization, a new science of qualities is now slowly emerging. And this is what we mm -hmm. describe in the book. Now, the book is a textbook, but not a, a strict conventional textbook. It's for a general audience, but it can also be used and is being used in universities and colleges. It's a big book. It has 500 pages, and it, it lays out this whole synthesis. And my co-author, Pierluigi Luisi, is a biochemist, so there's quite a bit of biochemistry in it, uh, biology, as I said, theory of evolution, and so on. So he brought that part to it. Interesting. I, I'd love to ask you about that, actually. Uh, how does a change, and I've, of course I know about the new biology, and inside of that also is the new chemistry. How does that show up in the subject of biochemistry relative to the larger evolutionary context? Well, basically, this is, really goes back to the work of Maturana and Varela. Uh, as I said, uh, the 20th century science has shown that the network is the basic pattern of organization of all life. And everybody knows what a network is. But not all networks are living systems. You know, a fishing net is not alive. You know, a chicken wire fence is a network, but it's not a living system. So Maturana mm -hmm. and Varela asked the question, what is characteristic of living networks? What allows life to continually renew itself, repair itself, perpetuate itself, evolve, and so on? And what they found out was that the key characteristic of living networks is 
that they are self-generating. In a cell, the simplest living system, which is a, a network of chemical processes, um, each part is continually produced uh, and replaced and transformed by the entire uh, chemical network, the metabolic network. So mm -hmm. uh, living networks continually create or recreate themselves by uh, creating and uh, transforming their components. That's, that's the characteristic uh, uh, of, of living systems. Technically, Maturana and Varela coined a term for that, which is a Greek word, autopoiesis, and it mm -hmm. means self-making. Auto, of course, means self, and poiesis, interestingly, the same root as poetry, means to make. So autopoiesis mm -hmm. means uh, self-making. Uh, living networks continually make themselves. And so all the biochemistry, to come back to your question, uh, mm -hmm. flows from this basic insight that these chemical processes are interlinked in network fashion. And Pierluigi Luisi was one of the first uh, uh, to recognize it. He collaborated with Varela and, and uh, you know, developed his biochemistry accordingly. Got it. It's so interesting because in my experience, which is related, overlapped with yours, but also distinct, the bioassociation in listening to you, Fritoff, I'm mm -hmm. thinking of what comes to mind is the work of Bruce Lipton, who understands that the body alone is essentially mm -hmm. a series, a cellular biologist, I should say, uh, yes. who's been on our show many times. He's a dear friend. Mm -hmm. uh, the body consists of a series of communities from atomic to cellular to organic tissue, etc. And they are all, of course, interdependent on one another. I That's think right. about the work of Ken Wilber and his mm -hmm. understanding and speaking about holons and holonic mm -hmm. relationships that have a certain level of natural hierarchy to them as well. However, right. they are in themselves their own holonic community that are, again, wholly interrelated to each other. I think right. of the space of biomimicry, which is so much of what you're saying in its own uh, lexicon, if you will. So yeah. here we have these other interdisciplinary fields and holistic thinkers yeah. that are weaving a similar kind of story. Yeah, let me Your comment thoughts. a little on, on what you said, which is, of course, very Please. interesting. The, the term holon was actually created by Arthur Köstler, who, yes. who, who was a, uh, uh, he was not a scientist, he was a philosopher and a writer. An and uh, yeah. he, he, during his whole life, he, he had this battle against the mechanistic worldview and the reductionist worldview, seeing, mm -hmm. you know, the world as a machine. And so he yeah. realized, as you just said, that at each level of complexity, we have entities that are integrated wholes 
and are at the same time part of larger wholes. Now, today, I, in, in our book, we talk about networks within networks, or we talk about nested systems, systems within mm -hmm. systems. So that's, that's the general insight. Uh, and in, uh, in earlier days, you know, this arrangement of systems within systems was called hierarchies. But they are actually not hierarchies comparable to the human hierarchy where power yeah. flows from the top and you have a pyramid structure. It's, it's more that you have any part, any integrated whole, you can pick it out. Say you go out into a forest and, and you know, take a squirrel. Uh, the squirrel is an integrated whole, but it is a network also. It is composed of various organs and organ systems, and each organ is composed of tissues, and each tissue is composed of cells, and each cell of molecules. And at every level, we have a network. We have networks within networks, and they're all interacting, as you said. Absolutely. And I, I know that Wilbur utilized Kessler's idea. He co-opted it, if you will, into Kessler's. his larger world and cosmo right. view, if you will, yeah. as well as the work of Don Beck and uh, Claire Graves, um, you know, of Spiral Dynamics. So yes. it's not that he authored it, but rather included yeah. it yeah. in a kind now, of a larger picture. Yeah. Now, now the difference is between uh, my work and their work, all these people you mentioned, is that yes. they are philosophers and although we say very similar things and agree with each other, what I'm uh, bringing to the table is a scientific basis, you know, based on yes. empirical yes. knowledge and, and uh, observation within uh, the scientific method. Absolutely. That, that's what is so wonderful about what you've been doing for all of these years is you're bringing that level of specificity and yes. scientific analysis to yeah, it has really, what could otherwise be considered rather, you know, rather fuzzy and only on the qualitative instead of also the quantitative. Yeah, yeah. You bring both, right? Yeah, and it, it has been a long journey, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, as I, as I mentioned, my last book is called The Systems View of Life. And I used this term for the first time in the early 1980s in my book, The Turning Point. You know, there's a, a yeah. section of the book which is called The Systems View of Life. And so I just began to explore that. And what I did at the time, I didn't know Maturana and Varela. Uh, I didn't know Lynn Margulis, who was also a big influence on me. And, mm -hmm. and I just tried to pulled together whatever I could from various areas and construct something which I called the system's view of life. And over the years, then, that evolved and became more and more precise through my book, The Web of Life and the Hidden Connections, and now with the grand synthesis in the book, which has the same title as the original phrase, the system's view of life. Yes. Yes. Now, you know, you and I are aware that systems theory has been around for the better part of, you know, 125 or That's so right. years. 
it's not a new theory. Uh, I first encountered systems theory in the field of psychology as a graduate student. We were yeah. thinking about families as systems. That's right. And, That's right. And, you know, including ancestors as systems, okay, right? And what are the interactions between the various levels of, of uh, ancestors and the way that then filters down, if you will, to the newer uh, members of a family. Yeah. So yeah, actually, we're you know, aware of this, yeah, this, but you have gone further in its integration of, because I think I may have come into life in large measure as a systems thinker. In uh-huh. some ways you had that, but you very much pursued the analytical perspective that physics originally, and then later quantum physics, where you could almost say your own mind began to expand in contemplation of two main things. One, quantum physics, so it was in your own respective lexicon, and then in your inquiry into the traditions specifically of the East, which was an entirely different, more, you could call it poetic, metaphoric language, yet you were able to pick up on it with, if you will, both your brains, you know, and you have been working at a synthesis ever since. Yeah, and let me say, let me say a little more about systems thinking you know as you said it emerged uh, you know about a hundred years ago a little little less than a hundred years ago in the 1920s and 1930s and interestingly it emerged uh, from a series of interdisciplinary dialogues among biologists psychologists and ecologists this took place in Europe and uh, it took place uh, in, in Germany mainly. And uh, you mentioned in your introduction, you mentioned the word Gestalt as an integrated pattern. Yeah. That, of course, is a German yeah, word. And the mm-hmm. original meaning of Gestalt is a living form. You know, in German, there are two words for form. One is the same form, which is a non-living form. And then Gestalt is a living form. And so, so these psychologists and biologists talked with each other and the biologists knew about, used this term gestalt for living biological forms. And then the psychologists took it over for an integrated pattern of perception. And then yeah. ecology was a very new science at the time and ecologists participated in this dialogue. And as you said, in psychology, um, Uh, the family and family therapy became a field which was uh, pioneering systems thinking in in psychology. Yes, Um, exactly. That's how I knew of it. Right. And, and, you know, the systems thinking that we, Luigi and I, are using in our book is uh, somewhat different because what happened in the 1970s and 1980s was complexity theory. Complexity theory is a mathematical theory of nonlinear systems. It's a nonlinear mathematics featuring computers and structures like stranger tractors and fractals and so on. And this Mm -hmm. mathematics allowed scientists for the first time 
to really deal with the enormous complexity of living systems mathematically. They were not able to do this before. So uh, complexity theory raised systems thinking to a whole new level. And, and that's what we are using in, in our work. Uh, Ilya Prigozhin was one of the first. I was to just use... about to mention him. Yeah. You're reading my mind. I wanted to ask yeah. you whether his work was uh, an expression of exactly this idea of complexity theory. Yes, and he, he was one of the very first to use this in the 1970s when it was just being developed. And he developed a new kind of thermodynamics and uh, defined living systems, not only living systems, but, but uh, these complex systems as dissipative structures, uh, as yes. structures that are stable and yet there is a flow, through, flow of energy through them all the time. And he got the Nobel Prize for that, using the concepts of complexity theory for his new theory. And please correct me if I don't understand this, because I am not at all a physicist, except for you could say an everyday physicist that I know how <laughs> to hop on my bike and swing a paddle. Right. A, a Newtonian like, physicist. Yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. No, but in my mind and heart, I'm a quantum physicist. Yes. But, uh, yeah. uh, and soul, no doubt. Uh, but I'd like to ask you, my understanding of Prigogine's work, and of course as it relates to this larger context, is that, uh, to especially an ecological, this ecosystemic context, is that you have a level of organization into which arises or emerges a disturbance of some sort. And I think I remember when I studied this that it was the idea of inside a um, inside an oyster when mm -hmm. there is a kind of a, a perturbation of some sort which disturbs the oyster but it leads to the pearl. It's almost the mm -hmm. idea of the lotus emerging from the mud yeah. but from the larger ecosystemic context it's pretty interesting because it suggests that inherent in natural systems there are always eruptions and disruptions to which the ecosystem must adapt or perish. Yes. And, and, and then and there becomes an, a higher level of complexity and reorganization right. of the organism or the system. Is that and a, what you are talking about, Mitchell, is now generally known as the phenomenon of emergence. The emergence after a disturbance, you're quite right, or, or at a point of instability uh, yes. that, that a system reaches, break through to an entirely new state. And, and that is known technically as a bifurcation and uh, more commonly as the emergence of new order. And you are absolutely right that Prigozhin was, I think, the very first to really analyze this process in detail. Oh, God, I'm, I'm already and continue to be a student of yours here, Fritoff. I'm very <laughs> in, appreciative Thank of you. this. So it, it, we're being begged to take a look at the contemporary scene of what's going on in our institutions across our precious planet in light of all that you just said about systems 
and uh-huh. disruption and disturbance and a new emergence. And when we look at what's going on today, socially, economically, politically, we see what we could pretty well identify as fairly serious disruptions in these systems. Absolutely. You take your thinking from the system's view of life and apply them to the real-world context. Yeah, and and this is, uh, I'm, I'm very glad you're bringing this up because this is a very important part of my work and it's an important part of our textbook. Uh, The system's view of life is not only fascinating intellectually, but has very concrete, important applications. And the reason is that when we look at the world today, at our multifaceted crisis, whether we look at uh, economics, energy, uh, climate change, Uh, social and economic inequality, violence and war, all these problems are really interconnected and interdependent. They are systemic problems, which means that none of them can be uh, solved in isolation. They have to be solved uh, within the context of other related problems. And this is what we call systemic solutions. And this is, again, where our friend Hazel Henderson comes in because she was really one of the pioneers to recognize this. As far back Mm -hmm. as the 1970s, she realized that the problems of the world are all interconnected and that we need a systems view to solve them. And um, when we analyze these problems further, we can see that underlying many, if not all, of the problems is our obsession with quantitative growth, that, that virtually all our political and corporate leaders believe in unlimited growth on a finite planet, which is ridiculous. You know, everybody, it should be obvious that this is not possible. This is a fantasy. And yet, everybody says a healthy economy is an economy that grows. And if it it grows more, it's it's healthier. And Hazel and I actually wrote a paper together several years ago, which we call qualitative growth. Because the solution is not to say there can't be any growth. Growth, as we all know, is part of life. Living organisms grow. But not everything grows all the time. You know, an organism or an ecosystem grow in their youth, then they mature, and then they decline and disintegrate and release their components to form elements of new growth, components, resources for new growth. And I learned this from Hazel, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago. And Mm -hmm. a few years ago, we wrote this paper, Qualitative Growth. So um, what we are are proposing is a shift from quantitative growth to qualitative growth. Qualitative growth is growth that enhances the quality of life. It is not necessarily expansion, but it also involves an increase in complexity and in maturation. And, And this is what we need in the world today. 
Yes, I appreciate that very much. And you're reminding me uh, that in my own thinking, I'm not an economist at all, but we all think about economy. And I think it's very important to realize that in our world of ever-increasing complexity, we have lost the magnificence of simplicity and the holistic worldview of the Renaissance man or woman who understood the larger picture. The ancient Chinese had the idea of the five excellencies. This was where every single university student had to master just a handful of different arts, calligraphy, poetry, science, history, right? And they knew that all of it was utterly interdependent and interconnected. Yeah. So in Leonardo's day, I, you're the one who's written about Leonardo da Vinci. And yes. here again, we see what we could call a synthetic, holistic thinker from the past. And this was, I would like, I like to say that this was actually the mode of education until really pretty much the 19th century when the notion of specialization began to predominate and right. we lost the forest for the trees. And yes, we, I feel, have been suffering uh, from that, I consider it an illness, ever since. Yeah. And only now, through the work you're doing, through, I'd like to also cite Rupert Sheldrake, the British biologist, right. whose right. work with field phenomena, again, inter intercedes with, interfaces with what you're doing with systems thinking as well. And coming back to a larger picture, I feel, is so important to help us move forward instead of being fractured. Absolutely. While while you were talking, uh, I, I was thinking that I actually experienced this wholeness of education in the Chinese framework in my study of mm-hmm. Tai Chi and in my practice of Tai Chi. Uh, my uh, Tai Chi master uh, passed away uh, a couple of years ago at the age of 95, and I began to study with him in the mid-1970s, and I studied Tai Chi, and I also studied calligraphy, and some other Tai Chi, tai chi students studied painting with him. And he was also my doctor, you know. He did acupuncture yeah. and herbal medicine, traditional Chinese medicine. And, and so I was really involved in, in this whole very integrated way of studying. Beautiful. Exactly. So and, you, and he would, you instance, captured the ancient wisdom and purview, perspective of how to learn and to connect on a deeper level partly mental, partly emotional, and relating to the life force itself to be the place of expression of your calligraphy and of your physical movement. Yeah, actually, you know, uh, Shufu Zhang, my master, uh, when we took calligraphy, he would show us that when he made a stroke with the brush, that the energy flowing through the arm, the qi, as they say in in, in Uh Chinese tradition, the qi flowing 
through the arm and through the brush and onto the paper and being reflected in in uh, the character that that he drew uh, is the same chi and the motion is the same as in a tai chi movement so it's it's yeah. really a very very beautiful integrated view isn't that something i mean if we were to bear down a little further we would see that even in the the language and the characters we see images talk about gestalt again yes. you know yes. you're getting a picture of an idea that you then absorb and then look at in the context of other ideograms yeah. which are presenting you with more pictures right yeah let me tell you another story which is quite amazing in the 1990s Please. i went to japan i went to japan several times and at one time i gave a talk at the National Japanese Acupuncture uh, Association. Oh. And they had a training course for young acupuncturists. And, uh, you mm. know, Japanese acupuncture is slightly different from Chinese acupuncture. Yeah. And what was, what was very specific there and, and uh, uh, very fascinating was that the senior teachers were blind. You know? I knew where you were and, going with this. Yeah, and so, I've experienced And so this. I yeah. saw them teach, and I remember this one old man who was uh, standing at the head of a table and another person was lying there, you know, playing the patient, and mm -hmm. a young woman was doing acupuncture, and the blind man was feeling the pulse, you know, of, of the person who was the subject. And he was feeling the pulse, and, and he told her, you're not holding the needle enough upright. You know, do it a little more upright. Mm -hmm. And you're moving a little too fast. I'm making this up now. I don't remember the details. Sure, no, I but understand. He could, to give an he idea. could feel from the pulse how she was holding the needle and operating the needle. He couldn't see it because he was blind, but he could feel it from the pulse. Yes. So the, yes. that was one of my most amazing experiences of, of this Chinese system. That's absolutely remarkable. I know exactly what you're talking about because, as you know, I am a licensed acupuncturist and right. was studying Chinese medicine back in the early 80s in New York mm -hmm. and a little bit also in China. And yeah. both the Japanese and the Chinese have this long-standing tradition of blind practitioners, including acupuncturists. And yeah. a good friend of mine and I, back in around 1983 or so, met a Japanese blind acupuncturist who worked on us using needles. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, how could they do this except yeah. that? Yeah. As you described, with the pulse, they can. Yeah. Their yeah, level absolutely. of perception of sensitivity yeah. has become so acute. So what yeah. does this tell us? I mean, this tells us that we are capable of so much more than we typically fancy right. ourselves as being, yes. you know, and your exploration of systems thinking, yeah. uh, you know, honestly, I'd like to do another dive in because this also relates to the mind and the body. And from a medical point of view, we are considered machines still in this day, yeah. unless you're in the alternative holistic movement, which I've been for decades. And to us, 
Newtonian physics, while we all appreciate it for all of the reasons that we know, uh, from a larger point of view, is actually primitive when working with the body, except for perhaps in cases of emergency medicine. Yeah, well, you know, you're touching on something which is really, uh, you know, one of the most dramatic uh, discoveries of the system's view of life, and that is a new conception of mind and consciousness. And Mm -hmm. let Mm -hmm. me give you just a little bit of, of background. The the problem that that uh, scientists and philosophers in the West faced for the last 300 years in trying to figure out how mind and body interact, the problem was, goes back to Descartes. Descartes, the great French philosopher and mathematician, sure. uh, distinguished between two separate and independent realms and, uh, you know, mind and matter. And mind, he called the thinking thing, res cogitans, the thinking thing. Mm -hmm. And matter, he called the extended thing. And so ever since Descartes, scientists and philosophers have thought of the mind as some kind of mysterious entity. Fritoff, I don't know why. Excuse me just one moment. Your voice faded for some reason. Maybe it has to do with your where okay. your mouthpiece is. There, oh, much shall, better. Thank you. Shall, shall I go oh, again? Yeah. Of course. So, yeah. so ever since Descartes, scientists and philosophers uh, have tried to figure out how this entity, this thinking thing, interacts with the body, the other thing. And the big yeah. breakthrough in system science, and this goes back to Maturana and Varela, is, and to Gregory Bateson, is mm-hmm. to recognize that the mind is not a thing but a process. This is now uh, called cognition, the process of knowing, and it is closely associated with the self-organization of those living networks. So the very process of self-organization is a cognitive process, and that is a huge, uh, very revolutionary breakthrough. That is. I very much appreciated that in your work here, where the notion, and maybe you could talk about this, uh, the notion of consciousness, which is otherwise considered utterly massive in its importance, is virtually, if I understand correctly, a subset of cognitive function. That's, that's right. This, this uh, concept of cognition, which goes back to, as I said, Gregory Bateson and Umberto Maturana, who discovered yes. it independently in, in the late uh, 1960s, uh, this, this concept sees cognition, the process of knowing, as an essential process of all life. So even a bacterium, even a simple cell, Uh, perceives things in the environment, bonds according to the sensory perception, uh, and uh, this is seen as a cognitive activity. And as uh, organisms become more and more complex in the history of evolution, the processes of cognition 
that are always associated with the biological structures also become more and more complex and we get the evolution of a nervous system, the evolution of a brain and at a certain stage of evolution then something new emerges and that is self-awareness. To be aware not only of the environment but of oneself. Not only to know but also to know that, that we know and that is what what is called consciousness and uh, consciousness actually is used in in many different ways in different traditions yeah. and by different people but this is this kind of reflective kind of consciousness is uh, mm -hmm. what what i call uh, when i consciousness when i use the term so it is a special type of cognition a special cognitive process of a certain complexity which emerged in in the great apes and then the hominids and humans in evolution you know i want to bring this up because i i remember you're mentioning that in something i i was watching of yours and we know today first of all one of the things you keep kind of up bringing forward in the way you speak is this this relationship between our intuitive knowing and our conscious analytical scientific inquiry right. and you have been i don't have to say masterful in articulating the scientific aspect of our in collective intuitive knowing i don't mean everyone but many people who have taken the time to be reflective about the nature of life, the nature of mm -hmm. reality, the nature of perception. So from this point of view, we, even scientifically, we know from books such as The Secret Life of Plants, and much research has been done since then about the communication between humans and trees and plants and even Gaia as an intelligence herself and the native peoples, the indigenous people from all over the world are highly expressive of this deep abiding exactly. relationship. Exactly. How does that figure into what you're putting forward? Yeah. Well, first of all, let's start with the last point that indigenous cultures, Native American cultures, for instance, when they talk mm -hmm. about nature, when they talk about the plants and animals in our environment, they call them their relations, right? All my yes. relations. All That's my a relations. very, very well-known uh, expression. Right. Well, they're mm -hmm. right. They're, they are literally right because ever since Darwin we know that all living species have a common ancestor. And since we all have a common ancestor, we are all related. And, and it's completely true that, that the tree outside my study here and, and you know, uh, my cat and, and uh, the, the yeah. deer that goes by our garden, you know, these, these are my relations, literally. Yeah. No, in the sense of evolution. Now, I want to say something also about intuition, and this is something I realized over the years as I was uh, investigating nonlinear systems. To me, intuitive knowledge is the knowledge of a nonlinear phenomenon. 
because nonlinearity is something that we cannot uh, completely analyze in language and in rational thought, which are linear, but yeah. we can recognize them intuitively. Let me give you an, an example that I often use in, in my classes, and I also use it in my online course uh, when, mm -hmm. when I talk to my students. Suppose uh, you, you, you have a, a good friend, and she walks into the room one day, or you meet in a cafe, and you say, what's the matter with you? Uh, why are you so sad? Now, how do you know that she is sad? If I ask you, how do you know? You won't be able to tell me. You, you just say, well, I just, she looks sad. Well, how does she look sad? Well, there are dozens and hundreds of facial expressions of mm -hmm. the tone of her voice, of the way she holds herself, it, and it all combines into a nonlinear pattern which translates into sadness. And the intuitive mind picks that up. So intuition is the sudden recognition of a nonlinear pattern. And if you want to analyze and describe it, you can do it, but it's always imperfect. It's never as perfect as, yeah. as the flash of intuition. So that, to me, is what intuition is. Beautiful. I like that. It's, uh, it's the combination of what might be a thousand or ten thousand bits of information exactly. of micro-movements. And it's yeah. as though, right, we have a, um, an antenna, which, yeah. and in fact, we do. It's called the nervous system. Yeah. And, and our perceptual apparatus, right? Yeah. Is and this is precisely what those psychologists in the 1920s and 30s called a gestalt. A gestalt exactly. for them is a, a perceptual and nonlinear perceptual pattern, and it takes intuition to perceive it. Yes, exactly. And you're right. We can linearize it if we want to. It would be very tedious. <laughs> but it's almost like you take the old movies where Nickelodeon, where you would go frame by frame, yes, and the yes, faster you yes. turn, the, it becomes continuous. Well, right. of course, the Buddhists believe that's actually all reality. is just yeah. occurring in flashes anyway. And yeah. we're the ones, through our perceptual... Yeah. Uh, framework and mindset connect all of those dots yeah. and turn it into a sequence yeah. that we call our see, lives. Um, right. You see, in science, we, we were helped enormously in the last uh, 20, 30 years by this development of a nonlinear mathematics with the help of computers. Mm -hmm. We can now yeah. analyze things nonlinearly. And uh, when you solve a nonlinear equation with these new techniques, what you get is not a formula like the equations we, we used to solve in high school, but uh, you get a pattern. You get a holistic pattern and the strange attractors of chaos theory yeah. or the fractals of fractal geometry are those patterns. Sure. You program the computer to draw out this pattern and the pattern is a uh, representation of the dynamics of an entire system. Fascinating. And now they have quantum computers. I can't even yeah, begin I mean, this to is, imagine uh, yeah. what that is. What yeah, is I don't even want to start <laughs> talking about Oh, this. okay. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. But I, yeah. I do want to bring up before we part 
the uh, deep relationship you have with Gaia, with Mother Earth, which has shown up in much of your work. And while some of it is articulated explicitly, it is always implicit. There we go with intuition again and reading yeah, thank the you. lines. And, uh, and also... Sure. You know, this it comes through also when I teach. You know, I've I've been teaching yeah. uh, my whole professional life, and now I have embarked on a new venture, which is, as you mentioned, uh, my online course, uh, yeah. which uh, I call. Please tell us about that, so people yeah, can. Uh, I call it. I call it Capra course, just uh, so that people can easily find it on the internet and recognize it. And yes. it is it is based on the systems view of life, based on the textbook, and it consists of twelve pre recorded lectures that were recorded in a very beautiful environment in the living room of an architect, a friend of mine, uh with with a lot of art, a lot of symbolic decorations and so on, with a small audience of ten to fifteen people. So each lecture is about forty minutes. And each lecture is available or is, is presented uh, for one week. And the past lectures remain available, but each week you get a new lecture. And in addition to that, we have an online discussion forum in which I participate regularly. So every day I interact with my students, with the course participants, in, you know, by posting things online. And I must tell you, Mitchell, I really enjoy that. And it is quite different from a classroom. Uh, of course, yeah. you don't have the direct face-to-face -face contact, but what you have is a discussion that is much more substantial because when somebody asks me a question, I don't need to answer right away. You know, it's posted and I can mull it over. I can look up some mm. books. I can, I can look up yeah. something on, you know, on the internet and then answer in a much more complete way. And on the student side, in order to ask a question or make a comment, you also you don't have to do it right away. You can really think it over. And so the, the discussion we have, and it's a whole network of, of discussions, uh, the discussion is much more substantial than in the classroom. And I, I must say I really enjoy that. I spend about half an hour a day when the course runs, spend about mm -hmm. 30 minutes a day interacting with my students, and I really enjoy it. Well, that is wonderful to hear, Rodolf, because I will be one of your students. Well, Hazel and I will be sharing a seat together. <laughs> exactly. So for, for uh, our listeners, there is a very extensive yes. website uh, at capracourse.net where you can find all the details. Fantastic. There is one more quintessential question that I have to ask you because sure. of this deep relationship you have with systems, natural systems, and clearly your love of the earth, planet, and, and life itself. And that is, we are talking about disruptions and disturbances and precipices of the social institutions mm -hmm. we have, political, economic, etc., as well as ecological. And it looks like we are facing a phenomenon, Fridoff, of immeasurable, incalculable importance. 
and we refer to it as climate change. I don't care, actually, about the phrase, but we do observe phenomena such as the severe melting of ice caps, both north and south. We see the uh, sea levels rising. We see a warming of the planet, by and large, to severe degrees. We see fires happening in places they didn't happen, tornadoes and hurricanes happening in places they typically haven't. We know the Earth is always part of a cycle. However, it also (laughs) seems very obvious that uh, the anthropogenic aspect of all of this is staring at us in the face. What are your thoughts about what is happening and where we're going and what's before us? Well, uh, first of all, let me come back to the fact that all these uh, phenomena and all these severe problems you mentioned are interconnected and interdependent. And we need systemic solutions to solve them. Now, the good news is that we have these systemic solutions. In, In our textbook, we spend about 60 pages at the end discussing the most important systemic solutions to all these problems, to the energy problem, climate change, uh, economic inequality, violence and war. All these problems have solutions which have been designed and tested around the world, mostly by NGOs, by the global civil society. The problem is that the corporate world and the political world has invested a lot in the status quo and doesn't want to change things. Think, for example, of the fossil fuel companies. They don't want to shift to wind energy or solar energy. We know how to do it. We have the technologies. We have the knowledge. What we need is the political will and, uh, you know, the values. It becomes a question of values and ethics. So that's, that's one thing I want to say. The other thing which is also very serious, and, and you asked this question, where are we going? And to formulate yeah. it in another way, you could, to make it more dramatic, you could say, is there hope for the future? Are we going to make it? Are we going to save the world? And I, I deliberately want say, didn't want to set up that drama, but well, please go on. Uh, I appreciate I, it. I think you know this is you know our listeners will will think along those lines, and I can yeah. tell you that I have been very inspired over the last ten years or so by the writings of Václav Havel, the great Czech playwright and former president of the Czech Republic. Mm-hmm who wrote in one of his books, uh, who, who asked this question, is there hope for the future? And he turns it into a meditation on hope itself. And uh, if you look at, at our book, The System's View of Life, this is how we end the book, with this quotation by Havel on the very last page of the book. And let me read it to you. This is what Václav Havel writes. The kind of hope that I often think about I understand above all as a state of mind, not a state of the world. Either we have hope within us or we don't. It is a dimension of the soul, and it's not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well. 
But the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. So this is, has been my inspiration over all oh, these years. God, I understand, Verstehr. That is very powerful. It takes it out of one realm and leaves it deeply on the level of soul. Oh, spirituality, and essentially. Yes. And spirituality, exactly. Well, I think that is an utterly beautiful note to uh, complete this interview on. And I just uh, can't thank you enough for the good work Great. that you have done. Well, doing thank you. This entirely. has been a real pleasure to talk to you. I'm so very glad. And we will continue our dialogue. And I so appreciate it. Thanks again for being on the show today. Thank you. Fritzhoff Capra, well-known, internationally known and appreciated physicist, environmentalist, activist, holistic thinker. His most recent book, The System's View of Life, on which is also the Capra course, same subject, and teased out in different ways based on the students who come and participate and ask questions and also engage him in the subject at hand. These are all, in reality, life and death matters. This is not just uh, speculation, academic speculation. This is really about our lives' core. And that's why I so much appreciate the work that he has been doing it spans the entire mind, body, heart, and ecology spectrum. And that's the kind of thinking we need more of in order for us to holistically deal with, systemically deal with the issues that are before us. I wholly agree with Fritoff that the solutions, systemic solutions, are in hand. One that is not, however, is the psychology of greed or perhaps we understand it, now we have to learn how to move that mental state, which is the way I think about it, that mental state, it's a rather fixed mental state with neural entrenchment to disengage and move forward in an evolutionary manner to thinking from I to we to a system's perspective and allow us all to prosper together on a sustainable planet. So I want to just thank you all for tuning in and listening today. Remember that we are at A Better World, a nonprofit organization of 501c3, so your donations to help keep us on the air are always appreciated. If you do not yet get our newsletter, it's free. Just visit our website, www abetterworld.tv abetterworld.tv it's on the right and become part of our community become part of the better world family species if you will we so appreciate it and also if you want more information on the work that I do with consulting stress management consulting and life coaching having to do with life purpose direction etc and systems thinking go to mitchellraben.com M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N.com. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. Another big warm thank you to Fritoff Kapra and his good work over the course of so many decades from which we have all so benefited and continue to. 
thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you all next week. Tune in now for another Austrian.